but um, I first started noticing the power that stories had over me uh, when I was in seminary. Someone had given me a copy of a book called A, a, a Severe Mercy by a guy named Sheldon Van Auken. Uh, I was single while I was in seminary and about to graduate, life stretching out in front of me like a great big question mark. Uh, but someone gave me this book that talks about Van Auken's love affair with his wife, Davy. Uh, the two had met while they were not Christians in a uh, post-World War II marriage, uh, and had lived what Van Auken describes as a pagan lifestyle. But as the story goes on, Davy, the wife, ends up converting to Christianity, while Van Auken remains uh, a pretty staunch skeptic. Well, a solid portion of the book details Van Auken's own journey to faith in Jesus uh, uh, with some enlightening letters uh, from C.S. Lewis, uh, actually. But the real action of the book is in just this, this deep, powerful pathos surrounding Davy's death, which became, as the story goes on, the sort of um, uh, thing to symbolize for Van Auken his own journey to Jesus' sacrifice for him. So, there I am, single, alone, nothing but question marks in my future, and somebody gives me this, church, this book, and I start it one afternoon. Well, fast forward to around 4 a.m., and I am blubbering like a two-year-old uh, in my dormitory at seminary, unable to compose myself. You know that kind of shaking, crying, where you can't sort of get anything together at that moment? And I'll never forget thinking, okay, what is going on with me? Maybe I need to go see someone or something. What's happening with me? But the truth was, it was a story that had gotten, that had caught me up. The same thing happened, actually, as I think about it, uh, when I read Tolkien's uh, The Lord of the Rings. That's another one that sort of scooped me up, not for the pathos of the story, but really for the, uh, the nobility of the story. I was reading an article a while back where a, a professor at Baylor had asked his students to read the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and one of them wrote a paper on it saying, you know, after I read that book, I, I just felt like I was clean. Well, what are they saying? There's a certain point where, where uh, even if you're not a reader, I'll bet you that you've gotten caught up in a story. Um, you, you look back and there was these things where suddenly it wasn't a story anymore. Uh, it was something that was about you. It was about your life. You were maybe in a movie or you were reading a book or maybe even just sitting in your mama's lap. But suddenly you felt yourself uh, entranced under the spell of the story. Like space and time had stopped and it just took over you. Well, we've been looking this semester at why people would be convinced, to use Luke's word, that Jesus really was who he said that he was. And this morning, I want to sort of give us some insight into why it is Luke thought these stories would affect people in the way in which they did. And are you ready for it? It's because that before Luke wrote down these stories, Jesus himself was telling stories, stories that we call parables. Now look, we're going to talk a lot more about parables as the weeks sort of go on through our Gospel of Luke study. Uh, but today I want to talk about the idea of story under two big, broad headings. Number one, I want to consider the universal power of our stories, how everyone senses this. And then number two, I want to talk about the unique power of Jesus' stories, that his stories were a little bit different. Okay, so first one, the universal power of our stories. I think the reason why Jesus chooses to teach in parables is because he understands something basic about our humanity. That is, human beings are not just storytellers. We are story 
organizers. We are story believers, uh, story managers. Stories are the most ba- the basic fabric of, of what's interesting about us. And as it turns out, I would say it's the way in which anything becomes interesting to you. Um, you know, I think for a moment about your thoughts. I, I talked about this this summer. I want to revisit again. I think when I was younger, I used to think about my thoughts in my head the way in which I would a marble. You know, here I can pull out my thoughts about, about humanity. Uh, here is my thought about my assignments that are due this week. In other words, they're just sort of isolated ideas rolling around in my head. But I think good research has been done by sort of psychiatrists and otherwise to show that really all of these thoughts do not exist isolated inside your brain. They're actually connected in a web of beliefs. Some of those beliefs are very central to who we are. They're center web beliefs. Other things are on the periphery of life. We can take them or leave them. By the way, you can tell when you've gotten into those little center web beliefs when your emotions go up and down. When you get very angry or you get very happy, you've probably touched on that center web belief. But psychologists are noting that these webs of belief hang together as a whole in the form of a story. Uh, Jonathan Adler is an assistant professor of psychology at Olin College of Engineering who's written extensively on this. And one little quote from his, he says this. He says, the default mode of human cognition is a narrative mode. What's he saying? He's saying that even our rationality what we think is pure and separate from any kind of emotional uh, uh, side is itself coming to us in the form of a story, which is why they move us and stay with us and oftentimes can be the source of helping us figure things out. I found an article a number of years ago by a woman named Jennifer Percy uh, in, the, in the Atlantic Monthly. Um, where she, she apparently is a professor uh, of physics, but also a professor of creative writing. Now, those two disciplines don't always go together. No offense to physicists or creative writers in the room. Um, But she said after years of studying sort of pure science, she found herself just bumping up against a reality that there really weren't many gut-level answers to. By studying, she found pure science. You see, on the one hand, she noticed that when she studied the natural world, there was almost a a cruelty to it. Things that seemed to happen without any reason. There were just these uh, forces that were at work that you didn't have any control over and oftentimes did great harm to people. But on the other hand, she knew about our humanity that every time she interacted with it or thought about it, it just felt like it was meaningful despite the natural world telling her that it was not. (laughs) There was something true there, something real. Well, as she was working through this thing as a creative writer, she came across a short story that had written by a guy named Lawrence Sargent Hall, a heartbreaking short story. In it, a man goes out on a fishing trip into the ocean with his young son. But as the story goes, he wanders out from the shore too far, uh, a little bit too late, and the father begins to realize that they've gone too far and they'll never make it back. Well, there's this excruciating dialogue that goes on between the father, this this devastated father, and this oblivious child as they see and accept their fate. But all of a sudden, for Percy, she suddenly said, I saw it. That in, in the humanity of this terrible story, I suddenly saw that, yes, though there are, there are forces out there that work in the world, 
Here we see them met by the humanity of a father trying to love his son through an impossible situation. And she said, suddenly, it solved it for me. Look, think about this for a second. If you look back, I'll bet you that the real turning points of your own personal history happened around a story. You, or maybe you changed the story you were believing about. Maybe, maybe you went through a powerful experience that you still tell stories about. Maybe about a time in which you got lost in the midst of your story and somebody brought you through it. But either way, change comes to us through this mechanism. Now, why? Why am I going on about this? And I won't stop going on about it. Well, because now we've got to realize why it is that Jesus talks in parables and really why the Bible itself is a story. You do know that it's unique among world religions in that the book that we have is a unified narrative. Oh, there's lots of teaching in it, but the teaching is in the midst of a larger story arc. Other world religions don't have that feature. Why? Well, because J.R.R. Tolkien, a little essay he wrote on this topic, said that because history is God's story, and therefore to get to know Him, you're going to know Him through the stories. Not just to the ones that are in the Bible, but also to the people that share it. One of my favorite applications on this idea is just the way in which I think we tend to overthink the topic of evangelism. What is my responsibility to share with the world my faith in Jesus? Well, we get hung up on that, don't we? Well, I don't know if I can answer everybody's questions or say the right thing. What if, what if they ask something that I don't know how to answer? And of course, it's way over, it's, you're overcomplicated because the truth is simply sharing our stories that we've come to understand because we gathered in a place like this and looked into this story enough to see ourselves in it, as you begin to simply share those highlights with people around you, guess what? They come to faith. Why? Because it's the stories that move us, the stories that change us, and the stories that work on us. Look, before I move on to the second point, um, in the weeks to come, we're going to try a little bit of experiment that I'm going to ask you not to gasp over when it happens. I simply want to have some time, maybe like five minutes in the weeks that come, of someone from our congregation coming up and sharing with us a little bit of how God has been at work in their life in that particular last month. Um, I don't mean like testimonies in the sense of like how awesome my life is now that I've come to meet Jesus. Um, But rather people just saying, you know what, here's how through the ministries of this church, I saw God's fingerprint on my life just to see if maybe those stories could fashion for us something compelling. So stay tuned in the weeks ahead, because our stories are universally important for us. That's the first point. Second point, though, is this. There is a universal power to our stories, but there is a unique power to Jesus' stories that are actually different from ours. See, Jesus' appeal was that when he told stories, the story that he tells in Luke 8 is of a peculiar nature because he's talking about how we are to hear his stories. You know, stories we can take or leave sometimes. They may move us by power of inspiration. They may not. But Jesus is telling the ultimate story, the meta-narrative, if you will. It's the story that actually conditions all the other stories. And so Jesus chooses as the topic of his first parable the way in which we hear his story (laughs) and the way in which we understand it. The faculty of hearing, as it turns out, is the vital way in which Christianity comes to us. Uh, Personally, I think this accounts for the emphasis that the early Christians had on how important it was to sit under preaching. In Romans 10, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? 
And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? See? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Verse 17, listen to this. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Ah, see, now we talk, we've talked the last two weeks, haven't we? About faith, what it means to believe. How do we come about believing? Well, now we know. It comes by hearing. And so Jesus says down there in verse 18, take care how you hear. And what he does is he outlines for us four different ways of hearing the word, three of which are problems, the fourth of which is the good way. So let's look at these things one by one. The hard, shallow, and distracted hearing versus the fruitful hearing. Number one, Jesus says some people struggle with hard hearing, that you're listening to the the word of God with a hard heart. I would say he's talking about those who deal with it on an intellectual basis only. Jesus uses this illustration of a seed because a seed can only germinate and do what it does if it goes underneath, right? It's got to go on the inside and penetrate the deepest parts of the soil. Well, what he's saying is it's possibly in contact with the Word, even regularly, but if it doesn't make it to the deepest parts of your self-definition, then Christianity is always just going to be theoretical for you. And the first test is trying to, of, of this is to ask people, have you ever come under the personal power of this truth? Has it been experienced as a personal discovery? Has the Word of God ever dawned on you? Have you ever felt like you were waking up from a sleep? You knew it, but for whatever reason, in that Bible study or that sermon or that time I was reading, it, just, it was suddenly about me. It came home to me, or, or better yet, Has the truth of God ever like wrapped its hands around your throat and not let you sleep at night? It was driving you so crazy. Well, if none of those things has ever happened, then you might be have listened, you might be listening to the word of God with a hard heart. Maybe all our life, maybe it's just an intellectual game for you. Well, Jesus' description of what's actually happening here is that the devil is coming to snatch that seed away. Um, This is where you've got to rely on C.S. Lewis big time in his. Wonderful little book, uh, The Screwtape Letters. You know what the story's about? It's about a senior devil named Screwtape who's instructing a junior devil, Wormwood, in the ways of temptation. And so Screwtape tells a story about a, a former subject that he had who one day decides to go into a museum. Well, while he's looking at the exhibits, he starts to read something, and his thoughts begin to wander to ultimate questions. What is meaning, where does meaning come from? Who am I, spiritually speaking? Well, Screwtape says, I'll tell you what I did with this guy. All I did was whisper in his ear to remind him that he was hungry. On his way out, Screwtape says this, Once he was in the street, my battle was won. I showed him a newsboy shouting the midday paper and a a number 73 bus going past. And before he had reached the bottom of the steps, I had gotten him into an unalterable conviction that whatever odd ideas may have come into his head when he was shut up alone with his books... A healthy dose of real life was enough to show him that that sort of thing just couldn't be true. Look, the point, that, the point is, is that this exact same, same thing happens probably often even in our own midst. Is that what goes on? Have you thought to yourself, well, that was nice this morning, but you know, tomorrow it's time to go back to the real world. Is tomorrow the real world? What is this here? So hard hearing is the first kind of soil. The second soil is what we would call shallow hearing, shallow hearts, that really for whom it's only emotional. The first one's intellectual. The second one is emotional. 
This represents people who sort of hear the Bible with joy. They, they spring up to some degree. They get excited about Jesus. They're moved by Him. Maybe even some things begin to change. There's, their eyes feel, feel like they're being opened. But because their ground is shallow, there's no roots. And when the sun comes out, it burns up where they are. And the sun, which means that as soon as troubles come into their life and sufferings show up, they turn their back on God. And they say things like, well, what use was that? Didn't help me at all. They had an emotional experience, but it never sort of took them over. You know, they thought that they were entering Jesus' kingdom, but they're actually simply trying to get Jesus to enter their kingdom. They want someone to bless them, not to save them. This is kind of a hard truth, truth to face, but it's no less true that it's possible to be gathered around all sorts of religious activity, but when you don't see what the point of that activity is, it could be just another way for you to run away from God. I used this illustration for years in campus ministry, but you're not that far removed from a college campus to understand this. Let's say there's a young lady who shows up at Ole Miss, and she begins a life in her freshman year that is directly contrary to what she thought she wanted to live like. Uh, Drinking, uh, a drunken stupor, immorality everywhere. But the reason why is because she just wants to have friends. Well, sometime in the spring semester, she has a good friend of hers who shares the gospel with her and tells her about Jesus. Well, she all of a sudden decides to leave that old group of friends, and she goes and starts to attend Bible studies, and she comes to church on Sunday morning and and, and ends up sort of changing some manageable parts of her life. But in the end, can't you see that how it's very possible that Christianity for her was just a new means to her real end, which is to get friends? See? It used to be her, her irreligion that brought her friends before, But now it could very easily just be her religious friends that are telling her what to do. But in the end, her God is still her friends. It doesn't have anything to do with the activity. It's what really is what I'm dealing with in my heart. So Jesus says there's no better way to uncover this person than to see how they deal with suffering. When the trials come on, do you simply find that my idols aren't serving me anymore? So therefore, we just walk out the door. What good was that? It's as if Jesus is saying, look... Now, while things are not going awfully in your life, um, think about this. Is this about me or is this about you? Are you on my agenda for your life or are you on your agenda for your life? Decide that now so that when suffering comes along, it'll let you know that in the end it's my glory that is the point of why I came. Thirdly, the third sort of destructive soil is what he calls the distracted heart. Distracted hearing. The kind of scary part about this soil to me is that the first two soils are kind of clearly people that are not Christians. They walked away from it. But you know, the the third soil is one that's hard to tell. Somebody could be a Christian, they might not. They have some root, they stay on. they, They sort of have rooted to some degree, but the thorns are making it hard and difficult for them. In other words, these people have come to Christ, but Jesus is still sharing control with other things in their lives. There's distraction. They struggle with sort of uh, this this regular presence of of failure in their life. They don't have any assurance of their own salvation. Uh, They're always anxious. And for many of us, it's a hard realization to realize that once you've come to Christ, you're never going to be happy again unless He has absolute sway over every area. Christianity kind of resists half-hearted attempts to jump in. It, it, in other words, it hurts you to try to have just a little bit of Jesus. 
It's bad for you. Well, you know, we think to ourselves, we did have a child now, so it'd be good for us to get back to church. Just a little bit of Jesus, just so our kid doesn't grow up screwed up or something. Right? But the truth of the matter is, is half of Jesus is almost worse than not having him at all. Because it hurts you. You know, the other two, the other two souls, they're not miserable. The, the distracted heart is miserable. It, the nature of the idolatry of our hearts is such that we cannot continue to live where my children's success is the most important thing in my life. Because in the end, pressuring them to be made in our image and trying to worship Jesus only frustrates them. You don't get your children in that scheme. We can't continue to faithfully serve our careers, you know, compromising our integrity at every turn and try to worship Jesus because in the end, our, our careers end up cursing us and destroying us. We can't slave tirelessly to have other people like me and worship Jesus. Why? Because it only makes you miserable. What's happening? Well, you're trapped. You're being choked. You know too much. You can't turn around. The other groups aren't miserable. The truth is what we're dealing with is a divided heart, which is why the psalmist says, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. My friend Brian Habig gave a great illustration about a, um, the fact that there are professional wine tasters. Go figure. Uh, wine stewards, as it were. Apparently, fancy restaurants will have a person on staff who are especially skilled at matching certain types of wine uh, with certain types of foods and certain types of palates. Uh, They're called sommeliers. Um, well, these professional wine tasters will often put on events where they sort of uh, show their talents to the watching world by tasting various wines. Um, and so Habe got to go to one of these things and watch it all go down. He said, it's fascinating. You know, they'll approach the table, they'll pick up the glass and sort of look at the wine, they'll swish it around on the sides to see how it streaks down the sides of the glass. Uh, They'll stick their nose inside of it and smell very deeply, whatever the bouquet of the wine is. And then they'll sort of take a great big swig. They'll run it around their mouth for a while. And then they'll turn around and spit it into a bucket. And they'll say, what's up with that? It didn't take you very long to realize that, like, you're not going to last that long as a sommelier uh, while you're jugging all this wine uh, back and forth. Jesus is saying that the Christian community could have lots of sommeliers. People who actually sort of come, and even as Hebrews 6 says, taste the heavenly gift, show some sort of influence of the Spirit in their life, but then they spit it out. They never ingest it, never becomes a part of them. Well, Jesus' instruction to these people is it's time to do some weeding. (laughs) Some weeding. And this is a hard truth for many people to to grasp, that, that there really is a no to entering the kingdom of God. Yes, there's a positive acceptance of some things, but there is also a negative rejection of the things that are actually keeping me from those things, from the things that the kingdom of God would want me to do. I mean, would I ever turn down a job that offered me more money because I was afraid of what that job would do to my heart? Preacher types are great about this. Isn't it amazing how God always calls the preacher away to a little better paying job and a much better congregation than these people? (laughs) Preachers do it all the time. So what's the right kind of hearing? You know, we've seen the hard hearing. We've seen shallow hearing and distracted hearing. What does Jesus say is the real kind of hearing? Well, it's fruitful hearing. 
He says, you know that you've gotten my message, or at least in his terms, heard it, really heard it? If it produces a yield, something comes in you and out of you. And what are those things? Well, it's the fruits of the Spirit. There's love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and meekness and all the rest. But how does that happen? What's the means by which that happens? Let me see if I can rephrase that. What is it about Jesus' story in my life that makes it so transformational to me? Well, I hope that you'll realize that that's actually what this entire series is about. (laughs) The whole trip through Luke, that's the question we're asking. But I want to identify at least one thing that I think is the most relevant to our discussion this morning. And it's the fact of this, that as the sower sows his seed, the seed comes in contact with the ground. And I don't think there's any more vivid aspect of the story that Jesus is telling than the fact that He showed up. The fact that He came. Jesus incarnated Himself among us. The hymn writer would say that He left His Father's throne above. John 1 will say He came and tabernacled among us. In other words, the fact that Jesus shows up in our life is the transformational event that brings out all the rest of the chain. It's his story. Uh, I'll finish with this. There's a psychologist, uh, Lainey Peterson, who tells a story of being asked to speak to a room of like 300 parents uh, on the topic of children and self-esteem. She said as she droned through her material, she finished it and had a Q&A time at the end of her presentation when a smallish uh, woman of Indian descent came forward to the mic to ask a question. Well, she had just a, a heartbreaking story. Uh, She apparently had traveled to America after the death of her husband. And she came hoping for a better life. But since she had gotten in America, her child had been just ceaselessly bullied at school over and over again. And so she looks up at Peterson and is like, do I stay here or do I just go back to India? Peterson said she had no idea what to say to this woman. And she's not even sure why. But she decided to share a story of what happened to her when she was in college. So apparently, when she was in college, she had a roommate who was a journalism major. And they had come down sick and was unable to conduct an interview with the great poet who was speaking at the, con- at the conference that weekend, Maya Angelou. Uh, so she jumped at the chance to be able to interview Maya Angelou for her roommate. But she said after she listened to her presentation, she felt like the, the sort of uh, questions her roommate had given her to ask, just kind of, uh, they seemed dumb to her. So what she did is, after she, when she went backstage to, to be alone with her and interview her, she decided just to pour her heart out to her. She started talking about how lonely she was in college and how, how lost she was and not really knowing what she wanted to do. She said at the end of their time together, Angelo leaned in and said to her, let me tell you right now, dear, it's all about how you walk the path here on earth. So if you fall into a hole, let yourself grieve and cry. And when you climb back out, and you will, you can find your way to dance again. Now look, no offense against Maya Angelou. I'm actually quite a fan of her, uh, of her work. But that seems like a pretty vapid advice to me. <laughs> I'm always amazed at how the lack of profundity that uh, the world often has when they're trying to give life-changing advice. But the crazy thing was, Peterson said, at the end of that story that I told, the room was dead silent. Could have heard a pin drop. And all of a sudden, I hear this meek little voice of this little Indian woman at the front look up and say, thank you, it's enough. Now, what happened there? Well, the story was the avenue by which Peterson entered in. She connected with that woman. And because she connected there, she connected with everyone else. Do you see the point? 
The story about Jesus is that He showed up and brought a story of hope. And that ends up being the thing that bears fruit. We start to take on His way of seeing the world. Therefore, the stories are the means to the end. And the end is a transformed life of the fruit of our life. So let me finish with this question that lots of little old ladies used to pose to me when I was in seminary, and they would ask me out to lunch. Because they'd sit me down over, over the dinner table, and they'd look and say, well, all right, Les, tell me, what's your story? What is your story today, in this moment? Christians, Christians though, are the ones whose stories are bound up with Jesus. Is there something about Him that is somewhere in your narrative that became compelling, that became true, and changed everything? Is that true? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, we will in the quiet of this moment suggest that we all have stories, stories that have taken us in all kinds of places. For some of us, that story right now is a tragedy. We are heartbroken because of the sadness of our story. And so we ask that you might meet us in this hour, in these moments of quiet, that even as we lift up our voices and sing, you might hear from us something that is that's different. And that is a longing for you to work in us in a way in which maybe we've not seen you before, so that we can taste and see that you are good, that you came and entered in. So Father, would you grant us that? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.